Hello and welcome to The Why Podcast, a new series from Think at London Business School in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Brewis, and for this episode, my guest is Ina Anasi, Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour. She teaches an MBA elective on negotiation and bargaining. She's Academic Director of Next Level Leadership Programme and teaches on various executive education programmes too. Today, we're going to be talking about her paper, When It Pays to be Kind, the Allocation of Indirect Reciprocity Within Power Hierarchies. So, Ina, thanks very much for coming on to talk about this. First, I think we need some definitions. What is indirect reciprocity? And also, while you're at it, what is a pro-social act, which we're going to be hearing more about? Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be talking about this research. It was done in collaboration with Anurag Gupta, who is a PhD student here at London Business School, and with Gabrielle Adams, who is at the University of Virginia in the Batten School of Public Policy. So the research was really um, a collaborative effort. It was so much fun working with them. So I'm glad to be able to share our work with you. So What is indirect reciprocity? It's actually a term that comes out of evolutionary biology, um, which is not my field directly, but it's a topic that emerges from there. But it's something that I find interesting and that has direct relevance to hierarchies and, of course, psychology and the business world. So what is it? There's one definition I like, which is if I scratch your back, someone else will scratch mine. And what does that mean? So we observe people all the time and we watch what they do and we make judgments about them. And indirect reciprocity is this idea that if we see one person do something kind for someone else, we watch that and we think, gosh, that seems like a trustworthy and kind person. They did something kind for someone else. So if later on I have the opportunity to help them, to support them, to give them resources, I'm more likely to do so than if I hadn't seen them do that kind thing. So it's different from something that people are more familiar with, which is direct reciprocity. Direct reciprocity is I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And that's just kind of the couple or the dyad. Indirect reciprocity takes it to the social group and says, Well, when I observe, even though I have nothing to do with this kind act, I just observe it happening, I make judgments about the actor, and those judgments will affect my later behavior toward them. I'm more likely to support them and reward them than if I hadn't seen them do that, right? So that's what indirect reciprocity is. And it's really important in social groups because it encourages cooperative and kind behavior. Because if I'm deciding whether or not to be kind to someone else, and I think, oh, If down the road, other people hear about this and they're going to be more likely to support me, then I in that moment am more likely to act in a kind and pro-social way. Okay, so what it does is it increases the level of cooperation and trustworthy behavior in social groups, which is important for social groups. And so that's what indirect reciprocity is. Now, pro-social behavior or a pro-social act is an act that for the actor is costly and it benefits the target or the beneficiary, okay? So doing a favor for somebody, that's a prototypical pro-social act. Now, one thing I want to distinguish here is the act itself, saying it cost me right now and it benefited the beneficiary, versus why I did it, right? Was my reason for doing it altruistic, meaning it really wasn't about me benefiting, 
Or was the reason actually that I want to get something in the long term or in the short term from it? That's going to become important in the paper. Okay, so I want to differentiate between the act, which is pro-social, helps one person, and in the short term is costly to the actor, versus the underlying intent of it. Okay, so we're going to return to that, but um, but that is an important distinction. So this question of people's motivation in terms of acting as they do yeah. is part of kind of why you're interested in this. That's exactly right. So if we think about this dynamic that's going on, that you know, in social groups, we're watching other people, we're gossiping about other people, we're hearing, oh, this person did that to someone else, and we're making judgments about it. That moment of how do we make that judgment becomes really important because it affects the resource flow in social groups. What makes me believe that somebody is cooperative and trustworthy versus not? Now, so far, the research has typically said, well, if somebody acts kindly more often versus not, then I believe that they're more trustworthy. And of course, that's true. And therefore, I'm more likely to reward them. But from a social psychological perspective, there's a lot more going on which is I form attributions about why that person acted that way. And I use cues to figure it out. And if there's a cue in the environment that suggests, actually, I think they did it because they just wanted something back, then I'm going to be less likely to reward them because it's not actually indicative of somebody who's moral or trustworthy, right? There's something makes me think, I see that you acted pro-socially, but I'm suspicious about why you did that. And so I'm less likely to reward you right? So this is this attribution process based on signals above and beyond a pro-social act. The question is, why did you act that way? And my answer to that determines how much I'm going to give in response, how much indirect reciprocity I'll give. So that's where I came to in this particular project was, what are the signals that we use as observers to determine the trustworthiness and morality of a person? And you're looking at all of this in the context of these sort of power hierarchies. Exactly. So for me, you know, I've done a lot of research on power and hierarchy and how it affects people, both from the perspective of, you know, I'm the high power person or the low power person, and also from the perspective of I'm watching people at different levels of the hierarchy and I'm making judgments based on where they sit in the hierarchy. And so I apply this to this notion of signaling and attribution to say, If I'm watching somebody in a hierarchy give or be kind, do a favor for somebody who has more power than them versus less power than them, I'm going to make judgments about the intent, the reason why they did that act, and that's going to affect my propensity to later reward them. Now, from some perspectives, you might say this is like kissing up. We don't like people who kiss up, right? (laughs) And that's certainly true. What this research looks at is it says, do we take those judgments and actually put our money, our investments, and our resources to basically reward or withhold reward, right? So if I see somebody do a favor for their boss versus their subordinate, am I going to use my own money to reward those who I think are more altruistically motivated, which is those who give down, versus those who give up. So that's really what I wanted to test is like, when you are an observer and you're seeing this, do you form these attributions? And more importantly, does it affect the flow of resources in social groups? So you carried out three different studies 
And you used something called the dictator game, which is a paradigm, something that's used in psychological research a lot. How does that work? And why is it so popular amongst psychologists? What does it show? I mean, it actually, you know, psychologists certainly use it and behavioral economists use it a lot as well. So the dictator game is I give you money, let's say 10 pounds. You can do whatever you want with it. You can either keep it all or you can give however much of that money to me that you want. That's the game. Right? It's very simple. And so from a rational perspective, why would you ever give me any of that money, right? If I just gave you, to, if an experimenter gave you 10 pounds and then the experimenter says, Kathy, you can give however much from zero to 10 pounds that you want to Ina. And you're a complete stranger in this. So you're not. Nothing, you know, rationally, why would you give me anything? You should just take the 10 pounds and walk away, especially if you're never going to see me again, right? But we know that people actually don't act that way. People have these notions of fairness, et cetera. So they think, oh, well, gosh, I mean, what did I do for these 10 pounds? Like nothing. So maybe I should just give some to Ina. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. So people do tend to give of the 10 pounds. How much determines on a number of factors. But One factor that I wanted to look at is, look, if you're a participant and an experimenter gives you some money, let's say a pound, and then the experiment tells you, listen, there's this working group, right? This is basically studies one and two, and we can talk about the details, but you as the participant, I'm going to, you know, you read about a working group, a hierarchical group where people were working together. And in the context of working together, you learn that somebody in the middle of the hierarchy was given a little bonus, monetary bonus. And that person could keep the bonus or they could give it to their boss or to their subordinate. And you, the participant, read that that person either decided not to do it, not to give the bonus at all, or they decided to give it to their boss or they decided to give it to their subordinate. And then you as the participant are told, now the experimenter just gave you a pound. How much are you gonna give to that person in the middle of the hierarchy? You can keep it all or you can give as much as you want to that person. Now, again, from a rational perspective, why in the world would that participant give anything? Turns out they do. But then the more important for this research is, does the amount that they give depend on who that actor gave that bonus to? And if they gave the bonus to their boss, you as the participant give them less of that pound than if they gave that bonus to their subordinate. Now, interestingly enough, and consistent with the prior research, If that person in the middle of the hierarchy kept the money, then they get the least, right? So it's helpful if you give. It's more helpful if you give to somebody with less power than you than more power than you in terms of what people who are watching and observing are willing to give you in the future, right? So that's how we looked at That's how we used the dictator game in in these first two studies. And um, what did the studies look like? So how many people were involved and how did you actually set it up? This was conducted primarily during the pandemic. So these studies were conducted online. We recruited working people because we really wanted to get people who understood what it's like to work in an organization and see people, watch people, observe people, interact in hierarchies, watch people do favors for others. So we wanted them to kind of have that understanding and that experience. And then in the first study, we said listen, you're going to read about a working group that was doing an online study and you're going to read about kind of what they did and how they worked together and then you're going to answer some questions about them. So then they read about this team that was working together 
And that team was hierarchically differentiated. So there was a person at the top who was sort of the the most senior person, a person in the middle who was the kind of mid-level manager, let's say. And then we had the most junior person. And they read that, you know, they interacted over a few days. And importantly, the most senior person evaluated the person in the middle and the person in the middle evaluated the most junior person. Okay, so again, there's this power hierarchy, which is important. A few days into this working together, the person in the middle was given some money, a small, a very small amount of money by the experimenter. And they were told, listen, you can just keep that money. Nobody knows you got it. Your boss doesn't know you got it. Your subordinate doesn't know you got it. You can keep it. Or you can give it to either your boss or your subordinate. If you give it to your boss, your subordinate will never know that that thing happened. If you give it to your subordinate, your boss will never know that that whole bonus thing happened. Okay, so it's going to be a gift. The recipient will know, but no one else will know. And if you don't give it, No one will know that you ever received that bonus. So it's not like you're going to be judged by the others. Now, here's where the manipulation came in. We told them that that person in the middle had either decided not to give the bonus, they decided to keep it, or they decided to give it to their boss, or they decided to give it to their subordinate. Okay, so that was the key manipulation in study one. And then we, the experimenters, told the participants, listen, here's some money for you. Again, not a huge amount of money. And we said, listen, you can keep it. This is the dictator game. You can keep the money. It's up to you. Or you can split it with that person who was in the middle of the hierarchy and decide how much. You can give some to them however much you want to, or you can just keep it all. What's your choice? And that was it. That was the only measure we took in this study was what do they decide to do with that money that we gave them? And what we were interested in was, first of all, If that person in the middle gave the money versus didn't give the money earlier, you know, when they were working, does the participant give more? There's more indirect reciprocity offered. And then does the amount determined depend on who they gave to? And the answer is yes. Okay. If that person in the middle gave it to their boss, participants reward them less than if they decided to give that bonus to their subordinate. So that was sort of the the design of study one. Study two was actually very similar in terms of the structure of it, but we were worried like with this online interaction, like did they even believe that this working group was real? Did they believe that there was actually a person in the middle of a hierarchy who was given money and who decided to do X versus Y versus Z with it? And so in study two, we just tried to make it more realistic so that they would believe these were real people that they were hearing about. So we had this super involved method where We recruited people and we said, listen, this is a five-day study. Every day you're going to have to log in. You're going to learn what a team has done in the last 24 hours. You're going to answer questions about that team. You're going to hear about them, learn about them, judge them, (laughs) evaluate them over five days. And you have to do all five days to get the maximum amount of payment for this study. If you do all five days, you could get like an additional bonus. So we really incentivized them saying you have to come every day. And we thought that they would be more likely to believe that this work group was real. So day one, they would log in. They learned kind of like how much time the team had spent over the last 24 hours. Day two, they learned something else. Importantly, they never learned in things about the individuals on the team. They always learned stuff about the group as a whole because we didn't want to affect their later judgments of those people. On day four, 
we said, you know, something happened yesterday with this team, which is that the person in the middle was given this bonus by us, the experimenters. And they were told that they could give that bonus to their boss or their subordinate or they could keep it. So the participants reading this and then we manipulated whether that person in the middle gave the bonus to the boss or the subordinate. This time we didn't have that they kept the bonus. And then we said to the participant, look, here's a pound. This will be added onto your study payment. You can just keep that pound. It'll be part of your payment. Or you can give some of that to that person who is working in the middle of this hierarchy. And they're going to get this bonus. And this is going to be, for them, part of the study. And so, again, we found that when the participants had learned that that middle manager had given to their boss, the participants was willing to share less money than when they were willing to give it to their subordinate. When, they, when that person in the middle gave it to their subordinate. So again, the participants never, they were never going to interact with this team. They were never going to see them again. Why would they give any of that pound? But people do. Not only do they, but they vary it depending on these signals that they see in terms of who do they give it to. And as a result of that, what are their motivations? And what kind of people are they as a result? So interesting. And then in your third study, because so you'd figured out how people behave and what they do but then you also wanted to work out so what the sort of psychological mechanism is behind it why why they were doing this that's right what's really important to understand is of course this effect of how do resources move and how are people making judgments about who to give resources to versus not but it's also important to understand exactly why and our hypothesis was that again we watch people do something we form attributions about why do they act this way? Was it actually very selflessly and altruistically motivated? And therefore, this is a good person who re deserves rewards. Or might there have been some selfish intent? And therefore, they're less trustworthy and moral people. And therefore, they deserve less reward. So in study three, before measuring the indirect reciprocity, which is how much resources am I willing to give this person, we measured, okay, why do you think this person acted this way? Was it selflessly or selfishly motivated? As a result of that, what kind of person do you think they are? These are moral character judgments. How moral do you think they are? How trustworthy do you think they are? And then as a result of that, how much are you willing to help them at a later date? And so what we found was actually this, what we call a sort of two-part mediation process, which was who the actors ended up helping or being kind to affected participants' belief about why they did it. So if you end up doing something very kind and generous to or in front of or so that a high-power person can see you, participants are like, I mean, it was kind, but I think you might have done that for strategic reasons. I think you're slightly less moral and therefore I'm willing to help you less and give you fewer resources later on. Okay, so that was that's what we really looked at and nailed down in that last study. And this is something that no one else had shown before. So this is a first for your research. Yeah, I mean, so what this is really pulling together is, look, there's this evolutionary biology perspective on this, which is, we watch people act kindly more often, we give them more indirect reciprocity, they do act kindly less often, we give them less. And it's really just about this physical, this very core act, do you act pro-socially or not? 
And it's not about the underlying motive, but we know from social psychology that motive really, really matters, right? In terms of how much we're willing to reward, so how we calibrate. And so it was really bringing these two areas together to say, okay, what are the signals that we use to calibrate above and beyond saying, yes, they acted pro-socially, so I'm going to give them more, but I'm going to calibrate how much I give them more based on what I think their motive is. And so this kind of visual known signals like a power hierarchy, something that people can really see, this is the first time that that's really been identified. There's a wonderful literature in social psychology, actually here at London Business School, Jonathan Berman is a part of it. He's in the marketing department, which is sort of, when do we become suspicious of people's pro-social acts and what are the cues that make us suspicious? What I'm bringing this into is how does this affect the resources that we allocate for people and what are some of the signals that we use that affect the resources that we allocate to people? And that's that indirect reciprocity. And were you surprised by what you found? I mean, I predicted it, so I guess I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't wholly surprised. But I think, I mean, surprised, I guess, is not because, again, because I predicted I wasn't surprised, but I was gratified and I mean not to overstate it but sort of amazed because again it it is a pretty tough test of the hypothesis to give people money that they could take home and use and buy stuff with I mean a pound is not nothing at least studies they're earning less than a pound generally for participating in the study in the first place and we're giving them an additional pound right and the fact that they would be willing to give up some of that to reward someone that they've never met and they never will meet. I think that that's really powerful. And that, again, they're using the signal of who that person is choosing to be kind to, to determine how much they're willing to take out of their pocket. And I just think that that is really important. And it demonstrates a lot about people. And it also demonstrates a lot about why social groups can work so well and function so well and how pro-social behavior and specifically the belief that it's altruistically motivated is such an important force in social groups. And I just find that really exciting and interesting. Mm. And at this time, you know, after sort of two years of COVID and Zoom calls and the sort of the way people interact normally is that's been perhaps sort of put to the test or sort of weakened to some extent. Yeah. And some of the ways that people interact with colleagues, it's perhaps become a bit less human and a bit more sort of transactional. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting point to sort of think about kind of social groups as well and that kind of behavior that benefits. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everything going online and on Zoom has changed social relationships at work. There's this sort of the fraying of these relationships that are so important. We know work is not just about task, accomplish task, finish task, move on to next task. There's so much more that's going on in organizational life that is facilitating or debilitating the success of organizations and not being able to see each other and interact with each other face to face and kind of have those informal exchanges has really affected people, affected work, but also just affected people's well-being in a really, really big way. And so what I would say with regards to this research is, and this idea that, look, one way that we can get closeness with others is to demonstrate our moral character 
because people value it and people are willing to be more vulnerable and closer and put themselves at risk, offer indirect reciprocity to those that they believe are moral and kind. And so one way that, especially if you're a manager leading a team, is to encourage and model pro-social behavior so that we start creating and forging these bonds and the willingness to be vulnerable and not have everything be quid pro quo. You know, I expect a response and a reward immediately for this is, no, I'm willing to engage in pro-social acts. I'm willing to do organizational citizenship behaviors. I'm willing to help others, even if I know I'm not going to get a reward for it immediately or tomorrow. That's super important. And so for managers and leaders to really model that is very, very important. Yeah. And so what should we take away from from this piece of research in terms of how we behave in the office or in the workplace or with colleagues? Yeah, I think I think there's the kind of strategic way that we can what we can take out of this work. And then there's the less strategic you know, from kind of following on to what I was saying about the fraying of social relationships as a result of COVID, the less strategic version of this is to say, we know that human social groups benefit from high levels of cooperation. And we know from this research that people are willing to reward those who give downward, especially. And so if you're in a high power position, It's just going to benefit everyone around you the more you are modeling that and showing that people are going to attribute your kind acts much more to altruism. And that's going to benefit you, but it's also going to benefit the group because this becomes a norm of behavior in the group and levels of cooperation will increase overall, which is just super important. From a sort of strategic careerist, I suppose, perspective, one takeaway would be Look, if you're in private and no one's watching except for the recipient, then give upward because the direct reciprocity you might get from a boss is going to be probably more valuable than the direct reciprocity you're going to get from a subordinate. But when you're public and others are watching you, give down because those people who are watching have the potential to offer you indirect reciprocity, which when you're talking about lots of people in a group hearing about your kind acts, that's actually a lot that you can get in terms of indirect reciprocity. So in private, give upward. In public, give downward. I prefer the less strategic takeaway from this, but I can understand that some people might also be interested in the more strategic way of thinking about this. So basically be generous that it's going to end up helping you one way or another. And even if you do it for cynical reasons, it's still going to help the group. So kind of do it anyway. That's right. I think there's this kind of old way of thinking about or there's one kind of historic, let's put it that way, way of thinking about kind acts is, oh, you're making yourself vulnerable. If you're offering kind acts to others, look out for yourself first of all, and do what's right for you and only do something if you're going to get it back from it. And that perspective has historically been quite dominant. But increasingly, what we're seeing is Kind acts don't just, yes, in the short term, they do potentially leave you vulnerable, but in the long term, especially if you're offering kind acts and that you become known for that and your reputation is consistent with that, that is helpful for you, but it's also setting a model for others, increasing the propensity for others to do that. And groups accomplish more when more people within the groups are acting in a cooperative fashion. You can just accomplish more. And so it's sort of a different way of thinking about I suppose you could say the instrumental gains of cooperative behavior. It's not as immediate, but it is real and it is there. So it's really worth collaborating and being helpful to 
people around you at work. That's such a nice message at these times. I mean, I, the only caveat I would say of that, you know, Adam Grant wrote a book called Give and Take a few years back. And what he talks about is, yeah, the benefits of offering, you know, generosity. And one takeaway from that was, look, the more generous you are, the better your work outcomes. But it wasn't a wholly linear relationship. There was a point at which if all you're doing is giving, <laughs> then you're not actually able to, you're leaving yourself too vulnerable, right? And it's going to be impossible for others around you to be able to give back enough to compensate. So it's not perfectly linear, that relationship. At a certain point, it starts becoming neither you, you know, you're not going to be able to, to benefit career-wise from it. But I think few of us are at risk of arriving at that point. I think the takeaway message for most people is like the more you're generous, the more you and the organization will benefit. So thought for the day, it's really worth contributing, collaborating and generally being helpful at work. What a nice message to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your research with us, Ina. I'm just going to go off now and find someone very junior to be extremely helpful to. Jonathan's research would say, don't tell other people about it, but some way figure out a way so that other people will know about it. <laughs> Well, thank you. No, thank you. This was really fun. I enjoyed talking about it and I appreciate all the questions and your interest in my work. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips, tools and news of our alumni direct to inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating. That helps new listeners find us. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.